Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Let me tell you about this week's sponsor, Shady Rays. You might have heard me talk about Shady Rays on this show before. And ever since they sent me my first pair, I have been loving these sunglasses and I'm loving the philosophy behind the company because Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company, meaning they don't overcharge you for sunglasses because truthfully, everyone knows sunglasses are overpriced and it's easy to lose or break sunglasses. So it always feels especially bad to break or lose an expensive pair of sunglasses. And Shady Rays has solved all of that. Let me tell you how they do it. The craziest thing about Shady Rays is the warranty. It's one of the best warranties in all of eyewear. They'll replace your shades if they are lost or broken for any reason. It doesn't matter what happens, whether you drop them in the ocean, run over them with your car, whatever. Try that with your high-priced shades and see if they'll help you. Even with that strong of a warranty, they still manage to make quality that I can tell you, holding in my hand, seems as good as any expensive name brand pair I have ever worn. They have polarized lenses that look perfectly clear, and most shady rays are $48. Shady Rays also provides 10 meals to fight hunger in America with every order placed, and they have provided over 10 million meals to date. They stand behind their product, and they told our team that if anyone has a problem, they'll throw profit out the window and do what it takes to get it right. They have free returns and exchanges. You either love the sunglasses or Shady Rays will pay to ship them back. That's it. So, here's the deal. Exclusively for our listeners this summer, you can use the code CAMERA for 50% off two or more pairs of shades at ShadyRays.com. You can buy one and get one free, or you can get two pairs of shades for $48. You can redeem this only at ShadyRays.com, where you can find all their newest and best shades. That's the code CAMERA for 50% off two or more pairs at ShadyRays.com. Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. In this episode, I sit down with actor and director Hank Azaria. Without even realizing it, we assume a lot about people just from their voice. Even though I'm talking to you on a podcast, I'd never really thought about that until I sat down with Hank Azaria. You know him, or at least his voice, from The Simpsons, where he plays a one-man army of characters like Mo the Bartender, Apu, and Chief Wiggum. On screen, he's created indelible characters like houseboy Agador Spartacus in The Birdcage and many others. From the age of five, he's had an almost scary ability to mimic anyone he has ever heard and then call up the impressions for use years later. But what separates Hank's work is the emotional depth he attaches to characters, no matter how outrageous. On some level, they are all people he knows, and that's why they make us laugh. Or in the case of his IFC show Brockmire, they make us wonder if what we're watching is really a comedy. What I never would have guessed is that for a long time, Hank's ability to disappear into other people actually held him back as an artist. His lifelong perfectionism didn't help either. In this episode, Hank talks about the role mimicry played in his childhood, the movies he wishes he hadn't done, and how hard it can be to let go of what other people think. He says that after 30 years in the business, he's only recently started to believe someone might find him interesting as an actor. I can guarantee you'll find him fascinating as a person. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Hank. Hello, Sam. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me here. Well, your show, Brockmire, which is on IFC, I love it. I've seen all the episodes, and I want more of them. And I think that what originally drew me into the show is the same thing that, as a kid, that the same affinity I had for Vince Gully, which obviously the two characters are completely different, (laughs) but there's something about idling away an afternoon to an announcer with a great voice who can take you away into a game. And the setup of your show is that you play um, a baseball announcer and you find out your wife has been cheating on you and you go on this sort of drunken, um, I don't even know what you would meltdown, call it. Meltdown? Meltdown. Yeah. Rant on, on national television and over the PA. And it becomes this legendary thing and you disappear from baseball together. And yeah. when the series picks up, you've been hired as a minor league announcer. Yes. And uh, the team is... The team owner is played by Amanda Peet. Correct. And what I find kind of amazing about the show is that this guy is 
sort of deplorable. He's a narcissist and he's a, uh, he's selfish and he's got a bunch of, you know, he's got a drug habit and he's an alcoholic. And yet I really like him. And I, I wonder, I don't even know why that works. I'm not sure either. Uh, it's an idea I had since I was a teenager and just got fascinated with this kind of announcer voice and what was funny about it which is, do guys always sound, do these guys always sound like this? Do they conduct their personal lives this way too? Because it seems like a weird way to go through life and express yourself. Right. And there are funny things about it, like you can say, they can say anything that they want if they, as long as they give the count afterwards, you know, like the New York Phil Rizzuto would talk more about the Italian meal he had the night before than the baseball game. He just accepted it because he'd throw in the count. Right. Or you could even just go, I'll tell you folks, I am exhausted because last night was all about Filipino hookers as Johnson swings and misses at a fastball 0-1. So you could just pretty much slip anything you want in there. And it, that became a jumping off point for broad comedy, but then... Um, tell the story of how Brockmeyer began. I had this idea to do a meltdown like that. I always thought it'd be a good video idea and you know, but I, you know, I had a bunch of characters. I found myself about 10 years ago with a bunch of characters that I never did on The Simpsons or never got to play in a movie or on a TV show. And I'm not on SNL and I wasn't on Mad TV. I'm like, what do I do? And you know, my agent was like, you know, there's now digital outlets that exist, like your friend Will Ferrell's Funny or Die, where you can just go and, and do it. And they'll like produce your short if you got a good, if you got a good enough idea. So when you say you had characters, would you sort of flesh them out each time or think about them, take notes or? You know, I'm, I'm a mimic at heart. That's just really what, that's my default setting as a human being is to mimic whatever I hear, cause I can, you know, cause my vocal cords are plastic. And it, <laughs> since I'm five, it amuses me to do that. So I'm just always doing that anyway. And then certain voices really stay with me. And that was always one of the major ones, you know. Just, is that a picture, like a some, somehow reverse picture where you hear a voice and then you can start to visualize who that person is? Yes, but it wasn't even a, it's not a conscious process. It is now that I've done it for years and sort of broken it down, but you know, I would mimic everything and then found that uh, once I had the voice that seemed to work for the character, the body would follow, the body language would follow, the emotional life of the character would follow, even the way I sort of thought and improvised would follow. And that was sort of my way in the characters. So you talk to your agent and you find out about this thing called the internet. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, I kind of knew, but I, I was like, oh, right, funny or die. But that wasn't a small thing to produce. It was kind of a small thing, actually. We wrote the script and, and uh, they gave us a couple of days to shoot it, but we just ran and it was run and gun, you know? It was just like, we knew what we wanted to do, but it was very little money to do. It wasn't like, you know, huh. it, was, it was not a big deal. We just, we, we had a very distinct vision of what we want to do. And we, we shot a lot of stuff and we realized that the character, much to my surprise, the character's funny if you believe it's happening in the real world. Whenever it got broad, it sort of felt like a hat on a hat, just like too much. Because he's so out there, you have to believe that this guy is really just in the world. You know, we developed these scripts and you have your producer hat on. And to me, it was like, you're reading these scripts and these outlines, you're like, is it funny? Is it real? Does it make sense? And um, is the narrative, in, in, you know, working? And right. you're sort of checking boxes. Yes, it does. And you have like 12 seconds to do everything. And it all was good. And, you know, we got greenlit and great. And then as I started working on it as an actor and not as a producer and, and not just thinking about it in terms of, well, this will be funny saying it this way. And that's funny for an announcer to do it. It's like, this is actually kind of dark and um, rather emotional. Right. Like, I, as an actor, I'm like, holy shit, like, I know I'm talking like this, but it's, it's pretty dark shit. And Tim Kirkby, who's a British guy, who's a great director, he's done a lot of Veeps and a lot, a lot of wonderful cable shows. He'd come in, he, he would just say, mate, I'm telling you, this is fucking dark, it's pain. Everything, everyone in here is really in a lot of pain. And I was like, you know, you're, you're right. And if I really thought about it that way too much, I think I would have been, but it was, it was in a way always what I pictured for these characters, like this characters, like does a guy like this, when he's really in pain or really wasted or having sex or, or really fucked up, does he still have to express himself this way? And then like we hired Amanda Pete who- God, she's great. Uh, she was, you know, that's the other thing, Joel Cooper. I, 
we, we had the basic idea of the show, but all he said to Joel was, the writer was, you know, there probably should be a woman, maybe she owns the team, and he probably falls in love with her, I don't know. And then he came back with that love story you see in yeah. the thing, which is like probably the best part of the thing. Oh yeah. Is their relationship, their alcohol fueled, like how they back into this weird, completely unsentimental, but highly romantic love story that they neither one wants to admit they're having. Um, based on baseball somehow, right? Like, how can you do that? Yeah, it was, they're both so cynical on the surface, but there's a connection there that feels real, and it got more real as the show progressed, too. That's what surprised me. Even shooting it, even knowing it, it's like, wow, this thing actually is unfolding in a way that... I love narratives. I'm more drawn to our... I love television in this golden age of television we're in. I'm, I'm so excited that there's, like nine shows in the lineup. I can't wait to watch them all. I'm much more drawn to the drama stuff because I like, I like a narrative. Yeah. And comedies don't do it enough, uh, I think. And this show does. Yeah, I wonder if that's something that, you know, that you wouldn't be able to conceive, you know, five, ten years ago, uh, that, that something could sort of be that loose between genres. Well, you can conceive it, but good luck enacting it. Right. You know, seriously. Yeah. I and mean, believe me, I tried. You know, I've come through, I've been, you know, I've been at this 30 years, Sam. I say I have. I was lucky enough to start working in television when I was about 22. Yeah. And it's frustrating to uh, work in network television. Some of it's delightful, but a lot of it's really constraining. And, um, you know, a couple of times you have this what you think is a great idea, like this show, for example. I mean, look, if this show had to come out through an ABC, CBS, or NBC, or even Fox filter, right? We couldn't even do about right. half of it. Well, I mean, the humor is, and the, and the subject matter is really adult. Yeah. You know, there's a quality to it where I don't know where else well, you're, you know, live. you're allowed to do that these days, right? Transparent and shameless and all these things that are like, is it comedy? What is it? It's just, what it is is just trying to reflect life in as honest and fucked up in a humorous way as possible. But if you need to take seven minutes and go, wait a minute, hold on from laughing because we have to look at how dark this shit is for a while. Yeah. And as long as it's engaging, right? I can't tell you how many times I had that exact argument with a network executive. We're like, but no, just let us for a few minutes, for a minute, let us just, you know, no, no, I, joke a page, joke a page, come on. Right. You know, and it's infuriating. And it's thrilling, though, to be able to now have venues like IFC or Amazon or Netflix or wherever you can do it. To me, that deeper thing is, who is this guy? Like, you've, cre you've created the ultimate television thing, which is the onion. And you can keep peeling back right. layer after layer. And by starting, like, you have to start kind of broad to do that well. I guess. I mean, look, look. All the voices I like to do, especially the ones that seem to hit, like, you know, Agador from the Birdcage, this guy, he's broad and he's silly and he sounds funny, but I, I knew guys like this. So these guys are real on some level, and that's part of what cracks me up about them. And I'm glad you brought that up, because I was gonna say before, is this guy, though, if you're gonna go with the, 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 the dramatic and comedic premise that you must express yourself this way, when you're fighting with your girlfriend, is it still coming out that filter? You know, it's hey. so weird. And Amanda Pete is so real and insists on being, you know, she wouldn't let me get away with anything. So she would be, you know, sometimes you do a take and, and somebody, like she was really upset. And to, you know, and, and you're, out, you're having to deal with it kind of really like, it, it became my problem. Like, okay, Amanda's really upset and, furious at me right now and I need to try to calm her down as best I can but I have to do it as this guy and it's so weird it's like now wait a minute darling please just can we and I, I could feel my own in my own brain I'm like that sounds insincere but it's the best I can do given I have to talk this way and it becomes kind of a funny interesting problem to have is express going through your real intimate emotional life like this guy it's almost like you created some sort of a, a challenge for yourself of, can I take a two-dimensional humorous voice yes. and make it three-dimensional? And then you put Amanda Peet across from you, and she is almost pushing you to be better, right? Yeah, like, even farther than I was hoping to go. Like, there were takes where I, I almost felt like 
I think that if I keep talking this way, she's going to punch me in the face because, you really? know, yeah, but I had to because that's my character and I can't break it. I can't go, right, wait, I'm sorry. What did you, what did you say? Let me just deal with you honestly for a second. I couldn't, you know, I can't do that. And there were takes where I would ask like, was that, did I sound enough like myself? Because I was so more concerned with dealing with her honestly, emotionally. That I was like, was I still in character? Like, no, no, it still sounded like Brockmire. So funny because you create this character, you pitch the show with your writers, you, you sell the show, you're making the show, you bring actors on, and then you're worried that you won't live up to their expectation of. <laughs> on this show, it's the first time I had the experience of, of working with the writer and the director. I felt like we were in a band. I felt like, oh, we all got to sort of do our weird thing and sort of the sum got greater than the parts. Oh, yeah. And I don't know how it happened exactly, but it was one of the only times I've ever been really surprised by how good something came out, how much more intense it was than I thought, how much funnier it was than I thought. Like bits that I thought, I don't think this is going to work, but I'll commit to it because that's what he wrote. And we'll see. I was like, holy shit, that was really funny. I've never had that experience before so much as I did on this. Wow. Well, you know, you've called yourself a character actor. With this face, I have no choice, Sam. Well, <laughs> I, that's what I was going to ask. I wonder if there was a time in your life where you didn't like that distinction. I, I guess I'm asking is, when yeah. you were young, uh, whose career did you look at and say, you know, when it's all potential and everything's Everything's ahead. Whose career did you look at and say, that's, that's the kind of work I want to do. That's, that's who well, I identify So with. many folks, because being a mimic, I'm basically copying everything I see. So everything from you know, Peter Sellers to Woody Allen to Steve Martin to De Niro to Pacino to the Monty Python guys to, uh, you know, um, Dustin Hoffman. I mean, it was all over the map. And I didn't know where I fit into all that. The one I related to, I guess, the most from what I heard about Peter Sellers, not that I'm comparing myself to that particular genius, but he had what they call imposter syndrome, where, we, where he wasn't playing a character like Clouseau or what he did in Lolita, say, or whatever. He didn't feel like he existed almost. It's like, that's why Chauncey Gardner at the end was such kind of a genius thing for him because it, it, that's kind of what he felt like inside. Oh, and being there. Yeah, and being there, where he, he was just kind of this blank slate innocent. I became an actor, I didn't realize this at the time, but because I wanted to not be myself. I wanted to be other people. I wanted to be Steve Martin or Dustin Hoffman or Peter Sellers, whoever that was, or, or De Niro or Pacino, and um, was able to imitate these guys quite well so you sort of have the illusion of being these people. But then by the time I was in my mid-20s, and I already worked some and was okay, um, I, I started working with a, a great acting teacher named Roy London, and his message was, listen, I have bad news for you. In order to be a really great actor, you have to be willing to be yourself, to quite literally reveal yourself to people on stage or in front of a camera. And it doesn't really, whether you're talking like this or like this, or like this, you have to be willing to be showing what really this is, which I, Sam, I hated, and I wouldn't do it. I, it took me years in that class to be willing to relax and just kind of be myself in front of people. What do you think the fear was? Do you think it was that there wasn't enough there that people valued, or? It was nothing fancy. It was extremely low self-esteem. It was the belief that uh, it's boring. You don't want to see me. I mean, what difference does it make what, how I would react to something. What's interesting is how Woody Allen would react to something, not how Hank Azaria would. Like, who cares about that? Right. And Roy was like, he finally discovered that. He's like, what, what makes you think that that's not, because look, I have bad news for you. Maybe you're right that the way you would react is uninteresting, but it's kind of all you have. You know, it's like you, you, you just have to go from there. I found it excruciating. But I think what's interesting is going to an acting school and finding out, or going to an acting teacher and finding out that that's not enough. It's not enough to imitate. I mean, it's enough, you can work, but if you want to be great, if you want to really get in there, you know. I mean, Roy, Roy was an amazing teacher, and, and 
he would he, he would say, people ask me what this class is, and I'd say, he said, in my opinion, what this class is for is when, if you're lucky enough to find yourself across from De Niro or Meryl Streep or, or Gene Hackman or whatever great actor you want to name, that you are able to do what I think to match what they're doing, which is this, which is in a very intimate way, reveal who you are in front of folks. And he said, if you're authentically doing that, if you really are doing that, it, it can't help but be fascinating. When you say imposter syndrome, did you, had you not developed yourself enough to even have anything that you thought was there, or were you just, uh, could you just not find what was there? It was some of both. There were a few very specific blocks I had to it. One was just, again, the belief that even if I was doing it, it wouldn't be interesting. So I was very fearful of like just being boring or bad or not. And believable. did you think that people would see you and then say, you don't belong here? Yeah, you suck, you know, if that's not interesting or that's, you know, um, so fear of failure and, and also married with perfectionism, you know, just not wanting to look bad, which is very, pretty bad for an actor. Pursuit of excellence, wonderful. Pursuit of perfection, very uptight making. Oh yeah, you know? that's a good distinction. So there was that and you know, it got, it got a little intense. It was like um, I would uh, be going through a scene. I'd been in class for a few years. I was starting to get it. And I'd be going through, I'm like, oh, this is happening. I'm here. It's happening. It's okay. And then I would do, have a moment that um, I wasn't feeling or seemed off or I sounded tinny to myself. And I would shut down emotionally. I'd just start to judge myself like, oh, God, I fucking blew it. I'm out, they know it, I'm a fraud, I'm terrible. That, that moment sucked. And after a while, Roy went, wait, stop, stop, right there, what, what the fuck just happened to you? You're in the scene, and then now you're like the living dead. And I finally said, well, I kind of heard myself do a line reading poorly and took me out. He's like, and, and what would happen is I just wasn't feeling it anymore. I was sort of in a take or in a, I was genuinely emotionally in it. And he told this amazing story that made the whole difference for me as an actor. He said, look, let me, let me tell you a story. He said, when I was about 12, I'm having lunch with my mother at the country club. And my dad, who I adored, is out there. We can see him out on the golf course. And he's at the 18th hole wherever he's at. And he, we see him grab his heart and fall to the ground. And by the time my mother and I ran out there to him, he was dead. And he said, now look. That was the worst moment of my life. I can still cry about it when I talk about it. Um, he said, but look, it was, it was 38 years ago. He said, sometimes when I tell that story, I'm quite full of the emotion and I actually cry. Sometimes when I tell it, it's been 38 years, I'm not particularly emotionally connected to it. But he said, here's the difference. Whether I'm about to cry or removed from it, the person I'm talking to gets how much it meant to me. He said, that's where you're fucking up as an actor. He said, I, no one gives a shit if you're really feeling it or not. You might on one take, you might not on another, but if in those moments where you don't feel you're emotionally full, if you just focus on making sure your scene partner gets how you feel about it, whether you're reporting it or really feeling it, that's all you need to do. And that really unlocked it for me. So in other words, you were feeling the pressure that unless you were buying it from yourself each right. time that right. no one, everyone else is going to see through you. Right. That's incredible. And instead of trying to monitor that every second, which keeps you here to here, like it's totally your own. I just like, well, are they, are you buying it? You know, like, are you, if I'm in the scene with you, like, I'm not even your character. Are you Sam hearing what I'm saying? You understand how, and even if I'm not feeling it, if you're not getting it, like I'll do something, I'll go, no, fucking really. You know, whatever gets your attention. And as long as I focus on that honestly landing on you, I'm in the scene. And uh, another thing Roy used to preach was, well, that's what the character's feeling too. You know, one of the, like, some of the best moments, my favorite little moments I've seen myself have on film are actually when I've had a moment like that where I've given up on the scene where I'm just like, ugh, this is not going well. You let yourself be human. Yeah, and instead of like, holding on and staying with the scene. I just let myself go. <sighs> and really all that's about is this, that's just the scene isn't going well. <laughs> and then it resets and, and editors always put that in. 
because they're like, what happened there to that guy? They saw a human yeah, being. And exactly. a good editor was like, that's yeah, going to translate. All that moment was about was, God, this scene sucks right now. <laughs> Isn't that funny? And, but right there, there's the crux, because self-esteem is completely tied to that. Like, if you're a person with high self-esteem and you're having a bad moment, you're just like, screw it. This is yeah. something, this is, and you, and you let it go. But, but if you try too hard to control it, then... And I'm very susceptible to that. I'll, I'll hang on, that, that's that perfectionism thing. If I can't be seen being bad, it's like, mm. And I think probably that gives you a false sense of control. Like, I, I read something where you said after the birdcage, you had some expectations for your career after yeah. that point. Talk to me about that, about the idea of thinking that you could have enough control over your career. Like, like that's a falsehood, right? Yeah, I mean, it, I made a splash in that movie and it led to being able to, you know, what happens to a young actor if you make a splash, which is you'll get your chance to, to star in one, two or three movies. How old were you when The Birdcage was filmed? Uh, I think I, I turned 30 when I was shooting. I remember that, it's a craze, because I actually was shooting Heat at the same time and on my 30th birthday I shot 24 hours straight. I shot all night on Heat with Al Pacino and then I walked onto The Birdcage set and shot all day there until Mike Nichols took pity on me and said, You've been up all night shooting? Go home, go home. We'll think get... of that, Al Pacino to Mike Nichols, too. Oh my God. I, I mean, talk about riding a high on your self-esteem scale. Oh, I was <laughs> freaking out. I mean, I didn't even, I was so young, I, didn't, I was too young to even realize the pot of honey I learned. And I just come off a quiz show with Robert Redford and I thought all movies were gonna be like that. I, I learned otherwise. <laughs> but um, I didn't know, I was, part of that perfectionism thing that's horrible is instead of just like you said it's about control the illusion of well now i must pick the right thing and do the right thing and i must parlay this into movie stardom and and you try i mean if i could jump back into my 30 year old body now knowing what i know i'd say yeah you know do your best <laughs> you know and and the results of it are completely out of your control and the more you're able to relax probably the better chance you have of it doing well, but that's no guarantee either. Right. Well, you make a joke often about Godzilla being the film that almost ruined your career. Yeah. Well, it's true. That was one of the three films that didn't do too well. It was one of the three films that gave me a shot that didn't work out. Right. Off of Birdcage, mm -hmm. I did uh, Mystery Men with Ben Stiller and a lot of other awesome folks. Uh, a movie called Mystery Alaska with Russell Crowe about hockey. Right. And Godzilla. Three pretty big movies. Um, Three pretty big parts in these big movies. Yeah. And, uh, and the simple story is just from a purely, all that Hollywood cares about is how they did monetarily and they all flopped. Right. So that's kind of the beginning, middle, end of the story. They could have been creatively whatever, they, the same exact as they were, but if one happened to strangely make $200 million, then I would have gotten another one. And with Godzilla, you know, those filmmakers had just done Independence Day and it was huge, tremendous success and this was, seeming like it was going to be another one and that movie not only didn't do well and wasn't particularly good but it became the poster child for what was wrong with hollywood excess yes which yeah. was you know style over substance and promotion over actual delivering and, right and it was that was kind of true of all of it it illustrates the the ambiguity of this career you've chosen because you know the what you're talking about is you get a little run together and the run lasts you for a while right and if if some luck doesn't go your way, that can spell the end. Or at least a big stall, and you'd right. have, to, you have to reset. Right. But that's the thing, you know, I, I learned that, it, you know, part of what taught me that I'm a character actor is by definition, I think, so that's someone who, you realize it's kind of a marathon and not a sprint, and the real goal is just keep working um, over, over time and doing, and keeping that vital for yourself and enjoying it one day at a time and one project at a time, and um, I came to really mostly value enjoying a day's work rather than the results. That even with Brockmire, I mean, with Brockmire, I love it so much, I'm glad you do too, and I'm, it's very gratifying, and I hope people love it, but it's almost, that's another trap of like getting attached to some result. Right. I, I've been trained to like, I finished shooting it, it's done, what's the next thing? Because a much healthier state of mind. Yeah. You know. When you were getting out of that period of, you know, after Godzilla and Mystery Alaska and stuff, do you remember a couple times where maybe there was an example of the lesson changing? Like, how did you heal that self-esteem hole that you had? Therapy. 
Yeah. You know, like literally just being honest, like I'm, I'm devastated, I'm depressed, I'm really bummed this didn't work out. I'm, I'm embarrassed, I'm, I feel humiliated. I, for a perfectionist, that was far, far from perfect, the results of those things. And uh, really just kind of rolling up my sleeves and kind of working at uh, being okay with those failures. And, um, it, it, and in that sense, I, I, dare I say it, it kind of does become a bit of a spiritual journey. You, you know, and, and, it, and ironically, it's this big, crazy, sybaritic monster called Hollywood teaching you the lessons, but it's a pretty good teacher in its own way. Uh, if, you, if the lesson you're trying to learn is, I'm gonna keep this between me and me, and I'm gonna do what I feel is good, and then I'm gonna let that go and let people make of it what they will. It's like you can't get there without getting knocked down a bunch, and, and the imposter syndrome that you describe, that, that can't be too unique. In Hollywood, I would imagine not. No, I, I, it sounds like you had a more severe case. I was pretty intense. Although I don't know that that's true. I, I, I was, I, I was. My particular flavor of it was that beat yourself up, perfectionistic, only focus on what I did wrong. I mean, when I, you know, oh, I make myself miserable. In fact, you know, on those movies I mentioned, Mystery Men, Mystery Alaska, and um, Godzilla, I was so miserable making them, Sam. You were. Oh. Just the pressure I felt and this, you know. To, to keep this idea that your career is going like this and to keep it going. Yeah, to keep it going and, and be good and in other people's eyes. And I wonder what, when you were a kid, I wonder what the mimicry, I wonder what that was a uh, suit of armor for. Or I wonder how you used that to help you. It was that. It was a way to fit in. I remember being a teenager and I was so good at, you know, grew up in Queens. And there's the local kids who talk like this from Queens, the local street kids. And I wouldn't, I would just, when I was with them, I'd talk like that. What's up, buddy? How you doing? And as far as I knew, that's who I was. I was this fucking guy, you know, from the corner. <laughs> and I wasn't going to tell them I wasn't that. I was scared of them and wasn't going to, I didn't want to not be a tough guy. And, you know, and then I'd be with my smart friends and who were nerds and I'd be that with them, you know, talking about, you know, whatever we were, you know, Star Trek or, or Bugs Bunny, whatever. And then with my artistic friends, I'd, I'd be that persona. And sometimes it even involved a vocal change and I'd be, I would actually get fucked up by it. And only the way you can. Would you beat yourself up? Like, what are you doing? Yeah, who am I? I'm a You're fake. You're lying to I'm everybody. I'm a, I'm a weirdo. I'm, first of all, I'm a freak. How can I do all this? And second of all, who am I? What kind of a liar am I? I'm like a weirdo. Um, and it caused me a lot of teen angst. And then later I started realizing, oh, well, actually, it's kind of a skill, you know, that you can use in life and in your profession, actually. And, you know, but it took a long time to sort that out. Yeah, so it was a way to, you know, if somebody challenged you on the street in Queens, I wouldn't say, hey, now, come on, let's, let's talk through this. But like, the fuck do you want? What are you looking at, my friend? You know, it's... And, and I found that if my voice went there, I actually felt a lot tougher. Actually. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. So I'd just find... like in Brockmire, you're, the character follows the voice. It would, you know. I can tell when I'm starting to really resent someone or get annoyed with someone if I start imitating them. Oh, really? Yeah, I can tell that they're getting under my skin. I wonder what that is. It's my way of processing, you know, a lot, not just aggression and, and anger and frustration, but... It's like, it's almost like I'm saying, this is how you sound, this is how you're absurd. You know, that's what I'm, I'm saying under, underneath it or something. God, I hope you don't start imitating me doing this. <laughs> <laughs> You'll know if, I, if I'm getting annoyed with this. With your parents seeing you all the time, I mean, was there, was there any tension there with, with, you know, you could have these personas out in the world, but at home, some, I was more the, you know, my parents were the era, they weren't paying too much attention, really. My dad was a workaholic and, you know, not around all that much because he was just so busy making a buck. Right. And my mom was a little wrapped up in her own thing. And um, so, no. And I was pretty, I didn't think, I was pretty authentic with them. I didn't, I would mimic them to them when I was annoyed with them, which as a teenager was quite often. Yeah. 
And uh, I had a buddy, especially, who was like a brother to me, and we would, you know, we'd come up with imitations of our parents that would just reduce us to tears laughing. And I remember my mother being really angry with me, and my friend and I would just be rolling around on the ground laughing at how funny it was, because she sounded like her imitation. Right. Which you can imagine how that played with my mother. Yeah, not good. But again, that was a big defense, you know, that teen angst dealing with your mom and how upsetting that can be, what a release that was to like be able to imitate it and laugh yeah. at it. You know, yeah. Well, we could have used you in the neighborhood. With, we were big prank phone callers when I was a oh, kid. I, yeah, that was and a big I deal. And I was, you know, I, as, as creative as I was with the setup, I, I, didn't have a, a, I didn't have any kind of tools to get me through the, right. the delivery. I was good with that kind of I stuff. I bet you were. One of the early uses of the Brackmeyer voice is out my window, I could see a phone booth. Uh, we were 14 flights up, and I could see it on the corner. And I got the, it was back in the days, you could actually call them. I had right. the number. Right, you had the number. And I would call the phone booth as people were walking by and say, Hi, this is whoever from W, you know, WXLPR. There's $1,000 hidden in the red pinto to your left. You have exactly one minute to find it. And then I'd watch people <laughs> try to tear a, par, a car apart uh, to find $1,000 in there. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Helix Sleep. You know, if you've listened to this show for a while, you know that Helix Sleep has been a sponsor of ours for a number of years. But before they came on as a sponsor, I decided to take their personalized sleep quiz and try out their whole service. And I will tell you that since doing that, I have had the best sleep of my life. I got the mattress shipped to me from Helix Sleep. They have a 100-day no-risk guarantee. I tried all of that. But by the second or third day, I was already feeling the benefits of this mattress. And funny enough, I've always been a guy who thought I should have a firm mattress. But when I took the Helix Sleep Quiz, it recommended a medium mattress. So I thought, okay, I'll try it. And I was a little skeptical. But ever since sleeping on this mattress, I have never had better sleep in my life. And I'm here to tell you that it's a great company. They make a great product and they can help you find the mattress that works best for you. So here's what it's all about. They make personalized mattresses right here in America, and they ship them straight to your door with free no-contact delivery, free returns, and a 100-night sleep trial. To choose a mattress, Helix made this quiz that takes you just two minutes to complete, and it matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. So if you like a mattress that's really soft or really firm, if you sleep on your side or your back or your stomach, or you sleep really hot, with Helix, there's a specific mattress for each and everybody's unique taste. So, like I said, I was matched with a medium mattress, and I also got the cool mattress because I tend to get hot, and I'm also a side sleeper. And since then, I've found that I get longer sleep, I dream more, I wake up less, and in general, I'm just more comfortable. And the other benefit for me is that I've had a lot of lower back problems in my life, and since getting this mattress, I don't have that lower back issue that I often had waking up in years past. So... I love my mattress, but you don't need to take my word for it. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress of 2020 by GQ, Wired Magazine, and Apartment Therapy. So if you want a better night's sleep, go to helixsleep.com slash off-camera, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. And they have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but I'm guessing you will. And here's the best thing. For listeners of our show, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash off-camera. That's helixsleep.com slash off-camera for up to $200 off your mattress order. Thanks, and now back to the show. Let's talk a little bit about how mimicry eventually led you to The Simpsons. I wondered if you were first sort of ambivalent about doing voice work. If it felt like, oh, you're going to the middle a little bit, you know, because I think before The Simpsons, before things like this, before, you know, celebrities getting paid millions of dollars to do voiceovers on commercials and in, in feature animated films, did it, did it feel at times like it was going the other direction from the career you wanted? No, because, I mean, I suppose if I, you know, entered the world of doing, like, silly Saturday morning cartoons that weren't good or funny, you know, or, like, commercial voiceovers that were nothing, you know, it might have. 
But The Simpsons was so unto itself. It was like this, what is this thing? This you knew even when you, when you were Kind of, yeah. Well, first of all, it was James L. Brooks was standing there. So that was sort of a dead giveaway. Like, hey, if this guy wants to do an animated series, who am I to suggest that I shouldn't go along with it? Yeah. So it came in and read. It was a cattle call. I just read The Voice of Moe to start out. And I was doing a play at the time in Hollywood where I was imitating Al Pacino. Okay. The Dog Day Afternoon Al Pacino, early Al Pacino. Right. The dish Al Pacino, the high-pitched, you know, I'm dying here. Everybody's coming down on me. Yeah. And I did that voice, and they liked it, but they said, well, we want the voice to be gravelly. So if you take Al Pacino from Dog Day Afternoon and you make it gravelly, you get something approaching motor bartender. I wondered if you have any, if you've ever thought in any way about how you just did what you did, where you went from high Al Pacino to gravelly mo. If you thought about, if it's just so intuitive that you don't have to think about it. It is, it's intuitive. It has been since I was a child. I thought everybody could do this. I didn't really, you know, in the same way that you don't think about, I can sip water, everybody can sip water, right? But no, I've always been able to just, if I hear it, I can pretty much reproduce it if it's within my register. And my vocal cords are doing this. I don't know what they're doing. I guess I have control over them that, that only other people who can mimic kind of have. Yeah. I don't know, but I'm very grateful for it. And, uh, I wonder if it's more your vocal cords or your ear. Funny you say that. It's connected to that because part of it is, I realized this later in life as like, like if I, 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 we, I never really met you before and we chatted today. If I hear you 10 years from now, I'll know that's you. Really? Sam Jones. Yes, it's weird. It's almost savant. So you have almost like a memory for faces. Yeah, I can but file for it. it. It's very like it's very connected to my memory in a way that I think it isn't for most folks. Like I can, like you know, like you hear a car commercial and you're like, is that a celebrity? I can always tell you right away. You know, Jeff Bridges, uh, you know, Jeff funny. Daniels, whatever it is. Right. More often than not, I know within the first five seconds. And my wife, she loves playing this game. She's like, who's that? I'll say Scarlett Johansson. She's like, you are a freak. <laughs> I mean, I usually can pick it out right away. And to me, it seems obvious. So tell me just, just briefly, because I know you've told this before, but I think it, it bears, it's notable how there's sort of a chicken and egg concept to how to, to make an animated show like The Simpsons. Yeah. I mean, you have to start out almost like a radio play, correct? Correct. Now, what do you do when you have two characters that you do, say Mo and, and Chief Wiggum, talking to each other in right. the same scene? <laughs> it comes Can you jump back and forth in a yeah. table read, and, and do you record it well, that That's way? how you do it, absolutely. You get, it's an, it's like, that's one of those things like, when I first started, that was weird, and then after about a year or two, you just get used to that. See, that blows me away that, that you can, because I would imagine that for, for some people who, who do voices but not well or, or for those Saturday morning cartoons like you're talking about, that it can just become a quick caricature that doesn't have the depth of a character to it. It's just a voice. First of all, that's an easy thing to do. I mean, once you can talk like Chief Wiggum and you can talk like Mo, they can talk to each other. How you doing? I'm fine, you. Uh, I'm not having a great day today. Oh, I'm sorry, what's the matter? That's none of your goddamn business. It's not that hard to do. And then when you have to do it, we have to record it, sometimes I'll do it that way, or I'll go, let me just go through the Mo part this time, and then I'll go the Wigan part, because uh, it's hard to concentrate on acting both at the same time. But When you do it that way, when you do one at a time, do you yeah. have someone read the other part? Yeah, or you just, at this point, you can just imagine, or sometimes I'll just read the other part back to myself as if I'm cueing myself <laughs> in my normal voice, and then it really gets weird. But with that vocal stuff, I think it's a lot of gray area. I found my Simpsons voices, I was doing them well before I studied with Roy. I think the characters got funnier the more I was, even vocally, the more I was able to bring myself more. Like instead of approaching Chief Wiggum like, well, this is a funny way for a cop to sound and he's kind of dumb and fat and only cares about donuts. But then when I added in the layer, but wait a minute, what if I was a cop? What if I really was a cop, when me, Hank, was a cop and had to actually deal with this kid on the street, you know, shoplifting? I think it made it funnier and more personal. And when I, that layer got added, I noticed a difference in my vocal work. I hear what you're saying about that because I think that to, to do a character that's arrogant and to understand what arrogance is, arrogance is gonna have a certain 
like cadence and tone. And I, I think of comic book guy that you do. <laughs> and I don't think you can do that voice as well if you don't sort of understand that character very well. It can't just be a voice. Like there's a whole story built into why he speaks the way he speaks. Yeah, com- yeah he, comic book guy, he sounds like this. But he, somewhere in the memory banks, I know there was a guy who used to argue with kids on their level. And he'd be like really lording it over them. You know, in a, I, I don't know, I, I can't even describe it. I can't give voice to what the psyche of that guy. I just know he sounds like that, and thus the attitude follows along. But that's what's so amazing, either you accidentally did so much research and cataloging when you were a kid of of what voices match what personalities or or you just intrinsically you know uh, those things register with you but but yeah. I know more about that guy because of his voice yeah the, I would say that's what for some reason that's what I'm sometimes able to do it gets filed away uh, vocally uh, odd in an audio way, con- connected to the emotion of it. Like, you know what's weird? I never did a particularly good Brando impression. And this one is, it's a little out of practice, but it's, it's in the realm. Until I gained weight one time and I felt fat. And I just felt like Marlon Brando. And I would start talking like Brando because I felt fat. And somehow emotionally, Feeling fat motivated me to try to sound authentically like Brando. I don't know. It's weird. It's a weird thing. Well, I wanted to ask you about this documentary series you made called Fatherhood. Oh, yeah. It's basically a a series of about nine-minute short films that all make a larger story. They're sort of chaptered out. Yeah. And and I wonder if you'd tell me the story of, of why you decided to make that film. Because if the documentary is to be believed, yes. you did not know you were about to start on your own journey of fatherhood when you decided to make the that, film that Fatherhood. That is true. I don't like when doc. I'm a big documentary fan. I don't like it when documentaries play with facts like that to make it more compelling. Well, it's, it's very coincidental. Oh, my God. It was, uh, you know, the, the uh, I was with my lovely girlfriend, who's now my wife, and... The question for us was less do we get married and more do we have a kid? And we both happen to be those kind of people who are on the fence about it. It would have been easy if we both were like, I don't want to do that, or I definitely do want to do it, but we got a little obsessed with should we do it because she was at an age where if we're going to do it, we should kind of do it now. And I started asking all my, most of my poker buddies, like you and my friend Grant Heslov and others yeah. who are dads. You know, all these, uh, did you always want to do it? How is it? Why did you do it? Do you like it? Do you love your children more than your wife? And they all got pretty sick of it because they're like, deal the card, shut up. Who cares if you have a child or not? <laughs> but I was really asking. I said, you know, guys, the only thing, I'm qual- only thing I know how to do in life at all is prepare for a role. That's the only, the only thing I've ever learned in my life, my only skill. So if I ever, if Katie ever walked in and said she was pregnant, I would just follow you idiots around <laughs> and see what you do as dads. Cause that's how I, you know, if I'm playing a baker, I go hook up with a baker and look at them for a week and, you know, and, and try to get a load of them or to interview them. And that's what I would do, you know, with dad. So that's why I approached it. And my friend uh, who was dealing at the time said, you know, it's not a bad idea for a documentary. And so we started shooting it you know, because I was interested in that. And I just kind of went around asking every dad I knew, like, what's the deal with this? Why'd you do it? What's it like? Kind of from the point of view of somebody who doesn't get it. And does, I don't, also don't like children. It was my big, you know, what if you don't bond with it? And it, I, I realized, oh, intense things. Like, I don't think I liked myself. As, I don't like the kid that I was. I was like this cranky bully. And I was afraid I wouldn't want to have raised me. And all these kind of intense things came out of it. And uh, while we're shooting this stuff, my dog of 16 years starts to die. And uh, she's deaf and blind and senile. And, you know, I hung on to her too long, as people do. And I'm, like, hand-feeding her and basically taking care of her as one would an infant, really. And the irony's not lost on me that, you know. And we're shooting it because that's what's happening. Right. And the day that uh, I finally realized we have to put this dog down... uh, 
my wife, uh, girlfriend at the time, gets up and throws up. I said, you're taking this hard. And uh, she's like, well, uh, she throws up again. I'm like, to me, I'm th- to me, you seem pregnant. Are you pregnant? But we're shooting. Uh, it's like, oh, she's like, well, I'm like, what does well mean? He's like, well, I'm a little late. I'm like, are you, are, do you think you might be pregnant? I do think I might. I was like, well, take a test. I got the dog here dying. Take a test. She's like, oh, I, I bought one. It's like, are you concerned enough to take a test? She's like, yeah. I'm like, well, go take it. I'm on the phone with my good friend. She walks back in a minute. It only takes a minute to these tests. A minute later, sobbing, nodding, yes. I'm like, uh, Katie's pregnant. And my friend goes, okay, hang up the phone and go and hug her. And if he didn't say that, I, I swear I'd still be sitting there with my dog looking at the ground, freaking out. And uh, we were pregnant. The day the dog died, we found out we were pregnant. And then the documentary changed from, should I do this to, I'm, I'm, we're doing this. Yeah. Please, God, help me. How do I prepare? I was terrified. So it was terror. That's a long way of saying it was ter- fear and, uh, you know, not wanting to make horrible mistakes. Well, I think one of the questions you asked to all these other dads is, did you like the way you were raised? Yeah. And so I started wondering, was your fear of having kids more based on the relationship with your father even than maybe you expressed in that film? And mother, uh, yes. Uh, you know, look, I love my parents. I, I, I'm having the same quandary now as I had in Megan, which is I don't, I don't want to like trash my parents. Of course. But look, yes, that generation, there's even an episode where I kind of devote to about the difference, just generational differences in the way we were raised versus how we raised kids. And right. to my amazement, I discovered there was a lot of wisdom to that sort of, uh, they call it benevolent, benign neglect, okay? In other words, it wasn't just uh, uh, unconscious parroting. That's just what they did. There was actual thought put into it. It might, I don't know about that. <laughs> Let's not go crazy. Okay. They were just busy folks who were wrapped up in their own lives. But right. you, know, you didn't, look, let's look at this way. Parenting's only been a verb for about 10 years, okay? Like, it didn't exist when we were growing up. Parenting. You know, you were somebody's parent. Child rearing whatever you called it, and, and there wasn't a ton of thought put into it, and uh, there were downsides to that, and yes, I had, I had, I felt it was unfortunate some of the way I was raised. I was kind of a weird kid who needed attention in some ways that I, that I didn't get, um, and I've since totally realized my parents were doing their absolute best, but no, I didn't want to make those what I perceived as mistakes. Right. And I didn't feel like I had much game. Like I didn't have much modeled for me of how to, you know, get in there with a child and pay attention and uh, give them what they needed. Well, one of the things I have to tell you that I watched it and, and I just started trying to connect the dots watching this and wondering, you know, if, if I mean, even going, I watched your Tufts uh, commencement oh, my speech commencement address? Yeah. To, uh, to the 2016 <laughs> graduates and you talk about feeling like, not having value and having low self-esteem. And, and you start connecting the dots, and I could see how you would be terrified to be a parent. But also, that you w- I, I have a lot of respect for the way you went about it. I mean, did having kids, was that the final peeling back the onion to, of self-awareness of, of who I am and what kind of parent I want to yeah, be? Yeah, I mean, I could, I, I could tell something. I could sit here talking to you for an hours about this. Um, yes, I mean, what ended up happening with my son, you know, he was... 10 weeks early, and he was in the right. hospital for seven weeks. And I got the, you know, my, my big question, which was, well, what if you don't bond? Or what if you, what if you don't like the kid? Or all these self, or what if my life is ruined because I can't be a self-obsessed actor anymore and I like being that? And it's kind of our job as actors is to be, you know, self-obsessed and, 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 and all that. We're encouraged to do it in many ways, in shallow and deep ways. And once you're faced with the reality of, oh, my son might not be all right, you know, he might not be okay physically, uh, you, it felt like God went, I'll give you something to cry about, you want something to cry about, you know. In that nanosecond, you go, please, God, just let him be okay. Whatever's fine, you know, uh, having to give it up and can be more concerned about somebody else or figuring all this stuff out that I'm worried about. Um, I'll take it. It's okay, you know. Because when that happened, my fr- I, to my credit, I'm happier. Where my first thought was, "Oh my God, is he going to be all right? What's his life going to be like?" In those few days where you wondered, 
when a kid is born that early and the, the difficulties they face. And then your next thought is, what am I gonna do? I mean, what if I, for the rest of my life, am now dealing with a difficult situation? And many people do. And you're in that NICU and you see it happening all around you. Yeah. Kids, uh, people, families, and children less fortunate than we were. My son's, you know, you know healthy and, and okay. But um, so that really changed my paradigm. And what it leads to is it's the antidote to selfishness, which nothing else would have done so for me. He is the only being I care about more than myself. And that actually ended up unlocking, that was the next phase for me, unlocking me as an actor, I think. Really? So, yeah. so your, your approach to your career changed? I've talked about this before, and I could go on about this too, but you know, that became more important to me than any of all this nonsense. And um, that is what I needed. I needed to fucking relax. <laughs> you know what I mean? So There's a great quote, like so anything that's, any, any, any task that's done greatly has a certain element of fuck it in it. And I, I never had that fuck it element. You know, I just wasn't able to just jettison You it. had the perfectionist thing. Yeah. That pursuing excellence is fine as long as you know when to back off it and you, that you can't control the results of it. You can try, but actually the joy of it is that you can't control the results of it, not the tragedy of it. You know, I, I did this show called Huff like 10 years ago where I got to produce it as well and I edited it a lot. I was in the editing room a lot and my buddy Oliver Platt was in it and Blythe Danner was in it and we all got nominated for Emmys a few times and it was a nice experience. And, but I got to sit in the editing room and cut these scenes that I was in with, say, Oliver or Blythe. And, um, you know, I was, I still had this thing going, this like, gotta get it right, get it right, get it right, perfection, this one perfect way to do this scene, I'm gonna find it and do it. And um, I'm very well prepared, and I would do these scenes with Blythe, for example, where on the set, it seemed like I was wiping the floor with her. She never would remember more than two, three lines in a row. She was very loose with it. She never did it the same way twice. Often her takes were mostly bad. You know what I mean? It was like she was all over the place. And I'm doing their consistent, as if I'm doing it on a Broadway stage. Every time it's right, it's good, it's in there, you know, it's the timing's right, it's yes, well done, crisp. <laughs> and I get in the editing room and I cut the scene together and she would wipe the floor with me. I was like, no fair. Really? Yeah. So you wouldn't see it on the day. You wouldn't see it till you went to the editor. Well, what was happening was, in all those crazy takes, only two, three moments of them were any good, but those moments were breathtaking. Because she wasn't, she was just flowing it. She was just throwing it out there. And she didn't give a shit whether on the day, whether in the moment that we shot it, 80% of the takes sucked. She knew it was about those two, three moments of any given take that were amazing because she committed to some weird thing. But I was, you know, that takes a lot of courage. Well, yeah, because on set, on the day, you're worried that every time you do a take that falls apart, that everyone on set is judging you, exactly. right? It's exactly right. And then you're judging yourself. And on top of that, she would do a brilliant one, and then she was like, well, I got that one. I don't need to do the you know, sad one. Now I'll just do the, the, the one where I'm uncontrollably laughing. And I'd be like, how can you, that's so inconsistent. It's so crazy. How do you know that's the, and she's like, she was so great. She's like, honey, I just did that one. You have that one. Let's do a different one. Who are these people with all this self-esteem? But Sam, even when I knew that was a better way to go, it still took me years to get the nerve up to actually do it. I still was too like, no, I must. So even when you knew that was the key. Still couldn't, didn't have the courage to do it. The hardwiring. Exactly. So then cut to, you know, years later, my son's born. And I hadn't auditioned in a long time because I didn't need to. My son was about four or five, a few years ago. And I had an audition in New York. And honestly, I just didn't, it was a lot of materials, a lot of script pages, and I just didn't want to spend all the time I usually spend being so meticulous with all this work because I wanted to hang out with my son. You know what I mean? I didn't want to ruin the whole day or week. Right. I was like, eh, let me just, eh, let me just try a bunch of different weird things and see what works. It's just an audition anyway. And I went in there and I just kind of arbitrarily, almost stupidly went, you know, line by line, happy, sad, angry, deadpan, annoyed, frustrated, delighted, freaked out, and just did it, just committed to like showing a different color on every line. It's like, there, what do you think of that? And 
the audition was really good. <laughs> and the director really, I didn't get the role, by the way, but more than, and he had me do it again, and I just committed to a different way to do it. And I was like, and I hate auditioning. I've always hated it. And I really enjoyed it. And it like, that went well. Because I was just free and having fun and trying weird stuff. And then I got the job on Ray Donovan. I was like, you know, maybe I can apply that to this. I, it worked in that audition. Maybe I'll try that on, on Ray Donovan. On set? Yes. So this is just a few years ago. Yeah. First time I committed really to working this way. And that's what I did. I just was like, you know, I'm going to figure out four viable takes for a scene. I'm going to, you know, only 30% of any take has to be any good. I'm going to free myself from that. And if I just did one angry, I'm going to now do the frightened version. And if I just did frightened, I'm going to do the bemused version. It's literally that simple. And then just enjoy it and see what comes out. And because a lot of it for me that got me really uptight was, you know, take one, you do it real well. But now you got to recreate it. And instead of like trying something else, I try to perfect what I just did and recreate it, which is just nothing. It's just like perfectionistic no yeah. and self-conscious. Yeah. And we already did it once that way. Try it some other way. And it's the willingness to seem bad on the, in the moment. And when you tried that and had a take that didn't work, did you have to sort of uh, consciously divorce yourself from that? And like, were you able to say, doesn't matter? Yes, because what was much more important to me was like, oh my God, I'm enjoying this work. I'm having fun going, just did angry, now what? Oh yeah, sad. Oh, um, oh no, let's commit to now to the, uh, the uh, distracted version. So you're playing. Yeah, I'm playing. And knowing that even if they're doubting what they're seeing, I had now been at it long enough to know in the editing room, when they're in there on that day, they're gonna like it. I hear you also saying like, you're, you've, you're to the point in your career where they're not going to fire you if you do a few bad takes. Yeah, I got the, enough of the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. And I, you know, sometimes I'll go, you know, well, I'll apologize. I'll, I'll give myself the permission for it. I'll say, like, look, I'm going to try a thing. 80% of this might seem like it's nothing. But I, I, there might be a few moments in here of this version that you're going to like in editing. And, then, and everyone, you know how people are. And so, like, yeah, yeah, go, 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 yeah, rolling, action, go. You know, everyone just wants to get in the can and, and move. Yeah. And they'll be like, yeah, okay. And I can tell they thought that was nothing. And then I, well, I'd see in the finished product, nah, see, they use that moment or two. It's funny when you get out of your own way, how much not only you can enjoy the work, but you can see the work for what it is, right? Mm-hmm. God, it's fascinating, the journey, and maybe this is a common feeling, but I feel like I'm just getting started. Yeah. You know what I mean? I do feel that way. I wonder if that's what a byproduct is of having that sort of imposter feeling or that fear that you're not okay as you are, that you just come to things later. For me, you know, emotionally, and it's climbing down off this, this awful perfectionism thing. Look, on Brockmire, I started getting, you know, to that uptight place and I said, you know what? You know, just, it applies to this as well. Just, you know what? Stop. Only, it only has to, only you need a few moments per take. It doesn't have to all work all the time. Uh, it's, it's fine. It's like alcoholism. You, you have to fight the urge every day. <laughs> you yeah. don't just get rid of an issue and then have it be gone. You still have to work at it, right? Alcoholism is excessively, compulsively consuming alcohol. And this is obsessively, compulsively attempting to control outcomes and get it right. There's really not much difference. It's just what your drug of choice is. Well, Hank, I've learned so much Well, from I, that's you the whole point of this. Connected with you. I, <laughs> I love talking to you. I don't think you imitated me at any point in the conversation. I did which not. I feel good about. <laughs> You'd be hard to get. I don't think I could. You're too... You know what? I, I'll take that as a compliment. Too middle of the road. Yeah, maybe your oh, young that's self... Not a maybe your high-pitched... I'm uh, too middle of the maybe road. Maybe your young self, maybe I could have gotten. Do you mean uh, middle of the road in my range? Yeah, you're, you're, you're so normal-sounding oh, that it's, it's hard to... I don't know if I should take that as a compliment <laughs> or not. I got to develop a new voice. Now I'm insecure about my voice. I'm sorry. Sorry. Uh, Thank you but, for you know, doing welcome this. to the club. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot for doing this and for being so honest and Thanks sharing Thanks for having me. I enjoyed yeah. talking to you.
Hey folks, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation, even if you did have to listen to my middle-of-the-road voice for an hour. I'll have you know I will be calling Hank in 10 years to see if he can identify who the voice on the phone is. Make sure to check out Hank and Brockmeyer, his IFC show that is funny, dramatic, weird, deplorable, and highly entertaining. And also, go check out an episode or 500 of The Simpsons now that you've uh, heard a little bit of the story behind the voice. I did just that the other night, and uh, it was a whole new experience after talking to Hank. So here's a little insight into the way it works here at Off Camera. As you know, we are a television show and a podcast. As you may not know, we are also a magazine. So what happens is, guests come over to our lovely little studio in Santa Monica. We sit down and have a conversation in our quiet white room. And then afterwards, we usually have some fish tacos and then go into the photo studio where I spend some time making portraits of our guests. And those pictures end up in our off-camera magazine which you can check out by going to offcamera.com and visiting the store. It's a great way to support the show, and it's also a great way for us to really make a complete portrait of each guest. And the magazine is really close to my heart because each week as we come up with the headlines and lay out the photographs and pick the type, it's really a way to expand on the conversation with the guest. So check that out. If you want to follow us on social media, I am Sam Jones on Twitter, and I am Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. The show is Off Camera Show on both Instagram and Twitter. And if you want to send me an email, I am Sam at offcamera.com. I always love hearing suggestions, ideas, comments, criticisms. Love to know what you're doing with your life and how the show is impacting you. So send a letter. We couldn't do this show without the help of a lot of great people, so I'm just going to tell you who they are. There's Crawford Shippey, our producer. There's Nathan Shields, our tall, thin sound man. There's Michaela Galvin otherwise affectionately known as KK, Cakes, Cakels, and anything else we want to call her, who does graphics work and camera work, our fish taco orderer, and so much more, Sasha Snow, Kara Johnson, our transcriptionist, and Matt Davidson, our custodial services manager. All these people helped put the show on, and we couldn't do it without them. And of course, we couldn't do it without you, the listener. So if you're finding this podcast for the first time, do two things. Number one, go to iTunes subscribe to the show and leave us a rating anything above four stars is acceptable and number two tell all your friends about off camera so that we can keep the show going thanks for listening i appreciate it as always and i'm glad you're taking this journey with me see you next time off camera